Psst. Hey, you. Want access to exclusive secret ops intel? Check out the link in the description. Like I try to strike a balance when like, you know, the obvious landmines, you should address them to the extent possible. But he, I, I like to be biased towards action. And then you know, even if it means that you, to a point, you're going to make some mistakes and going to learn some things alongside the way. Welcome to Secret Ops, the podcast uncovering the world of operations one episode at a time. I'm your host, Ariana Cafone, and today's guest is Mateus Ralfi, co-founder and CEO at Tint. Now, we covered so many different topics on this episode because Mateus has so much experience across the industry in a lot of different roles and in a lot of different lenses. So we're going to go off our normal format a little bit, which is always fun. Uh, but I think it's because you're going to learn a ton because I know I did. All right, let's jump in. Mateus, thank you so much for coming on to Secret Ops. We were just having a chat and then I was like, we got to stop talking and start recording. This is too good. <laughs> so welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I think it's going to be a good conversation. I think so, too, because we've got so many things to talk about. Like I said, I was looking at your background and just to give the audience some context, because we can't put you in a bucket is what I've learned. Um, you have broken all sort of buckets. Uh, so couple things. You're a seasoned startup founder. You've been doing this for over a decade, starting and funding and scaling technical startups. So lots of good stuff to chat about there. You're also a YC Combinator alum and right. a uh, you hold an MBA from Harvard Business School, mm -hmm. which is all delicious. But then this is what struck me. So you are actually a licensed insurance broker in all 50 states of the US. And for our operators in the audience. So you were the director of international expansion at Turo and you essentially pioneered the global expansion of their operations, designing all the risk management at the different stages of the business. Am I missing anything in that? Uh, yeah, I think it, that's right. It was the only thing I would add, like I'm Brazilian, born and raised, uh, came to the US, what, 12 or 13 years ago now. Um, and as we were talking like on, on the side, I, I didn't leave Brazil or until I was really 18, but after that, like being traveling the world, moving different places, working different places, and definitely yeah, had a um, a global background. Well, you currently have, I mean, an insane wealth of experience. So I guess the one thing I wanted to start with is what do you think motivates you to follow all of these different paths? That's a great question. I'll tell you a hard one, but it, to me, it's like really doing something and having an impact. Like, you know, and, you know, I was a consultant for three and a half years, saw that as a way to get a toolkit and learn about business, see different industries. And while I don't regret, it was definitely a work that didn't fulfill me. Like as a consultant, you're not building, right? you're advising, you're helping others think through things and, and actually build. So I just want to build. I really have you no... Know, there are many problems in the world. There are many opportunities, right? The problems can be opportunities if you do the right things. And I just like to execute and do that. So you're you're a problem-driven person, meaning you want to solve mm -hmm. these problems. You want to get in. You want to create things. How has that tied to the operational work that you've done? Because I know I love solving problems all day long. Clearly, there's a connection there. I guess, how do you think that problem-first mentality ties to operations? 
Um, the way I say is like, you know, it starts with the problem. It starts with like, what are you, what are you trying to do? Like why, why it matters or why do you want to not do something? And then the next step is like, you know, the, the going back to the white combinator that you mentioned, like why you, like, why are you <laughs> qualified or the best person should be tackling this specific problem? So you definitely need to match both you need to match something that you saw an opportunity, something that you think, you know, it's a change that is necessary in the world with what you like when therefore um what you can do when it comes to yc combinator this is just mostly ariana being curious what was that process like what where do you where do you think that sort of fit within your career journey what did you take from the beginning of that and, and what did you take away from that journey yeah we got into y combinator we were you now about three years in to tent so we founded like you now the story of tent we um, I was one one of early employees of Turo, as you mentioned, running the international expansion. My co-founder was uh, running all the data science and all the data side of of the business, and we saw this opportunity. And you know, the company was offering insurance products to their customers very successfully, but we also saw how hard it was for them to figure out without help. And that was really the inspiration for for us to start Tint. Is really the company we wish existed when we were building those things uh, at Turo. So we so that we started tinting in in 2018, and we got into YC in the winter of 21. So really about three years into the journey, and YC was really an acceleration for us. Like we, mm-hmm. like I mentioned, been doing that for a while. Being you know as as any founders experimenting, trial and error. Um, and around the time we got to YC is really where the things were uh, the inflection point had happened. We were growing super fast. Um, no, 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 much, much faster than we were in the last three years. So YC was really like two things, was a stage. So it gave us a lot of visibility, uh, both with potential customers and potential investors. And it was also um, a learning experience on like how to do zero to one startups. So what? I saw a lot of the one to 10 at Turo or whatever, one to 30, because by the time I left Turo, uh, when I joined Turo, he had about you know, 15 employees. By the time I left, they had over 400. So I saw how a company go from you know, one or five to 30, but the zero to one is a very different world. And YC gave us really a crash course on how to be better in that kind of inception and first steps and towards then the, the one to 10 journey. Do you find also, because I feel like YC Combinator is this I don't know if you if you do if you haven't been in it, you're like, oh, what's this all about? And if you have been in it, it seems like a tight knit community. Was part of that also having that community of different people who've been through it, different expertises? Like, how does that piece fit into that? Uh, the community is huge. Uh, so I would say a YC network is as strong, if not stronger. Say what is say an alumni network is for a college for for like you know, an university is like that level of collaboration and, and and they were able to build something very special there. Um, so then a community again, for us, we benefited a lot from a customer perspective. So out of our first 10 customers, I would say half of them were white combinator companies. So it's really helped us on, on getting traction on the sales perspective. We had a lot of investors that kind of came to us through white combinator as well. Um, and then just being around other founders and having like side side conversations, like share battle stories is like, it's all very, um, very good as well. Like I still keep in touch mm-hmm. with a few founders from, from my batch. Um, our batch was like a relatively large one. We were 
like 360 companies. So obviously the same way that in undergrad or in business school, you don't become friends with everyone in your class, but there's always that group of like, you know, five to 10 that you really click and then we'll continue with you and you have like regular conversations going forward. Yeah, I totally felt that during code school too. Like you've got this whole group of people you're learning the skill with and then you sort of bond that like core people that then become weirdly enough lifelong friends, uh, luckily. Yes. <laughs> also, it's interesting, you know, my husband owns a business. I own a business now. It can be a very like lonely journey, even if you have a co-founder involved, It because sometimes you're just uh, doing something for the first time. So it's quite humbling. Um, how has it been having that support with you and, and your co-founder and, and starting this business? How have you been able to, I guess, navigate the changes and doing things for the first time? Uh, I, I definitely agree with the fact that it's, that is a lonely journey. Um, but I also agree with the fact that like the co-founder, it's very important. Um, I do believe that like, again, in, and yeah, I think a co-founding relationship, it's no, it's a, it's a very important relationship. And a lot of the early stage startups, the reason why they die is because the co-founders fight. And then they're so disruptive to the business that it's, like, it's really hard to recover. Uh, I'm lucky that Jerome, uh, my co-founder, as I mentioned, not only we worked together at Twitter for about four years, so we already knew each other, even if we never worked directly uh we knew each other we knew roughly what to expect and that translated very well to doing something for the first time for both of us which is done starting this company in insurance which was something that we now we didn't have a very deep background on just now other than our experience at Turo so it was very good through the ups and downs again tint when as I mentioned we got to YC on the third year so means that the first three years were a lot of trial and error and uh, you know, false steps and, and learning experiences. So the fact that throughout this entire process, we stay together, we stay having a great relationship, like we help each other when one is up, the other is down, that we can kind of balance each other, even emotionally. I think that support and that kind of partnership, it's you no, know, it was mission critical for us. And I believe it's mission critical for every startup. We're in an interesting position here because I've got someone that is a seasoned founder. Um, who also is an operator in their own right. And I have a, a particular question for you, for the operators listening, which is, at what point should you be seriously considering bringing in an operations person within the business? Mm -hmm. So I often get that question, like, yes. when should I bring a COO? When should I bring an operations director? H having seen it multiple times and doing it yourself and being an operator, when do you think that piece fits in or that role really becomes evident? Um, I'd say it's a very hard question to answer. And it's a very hard question to like, know the time. Right? I think the way the, what I learned and um, more and more like we are now, we have about 50 people. So it's a very different world from you now. It was when we were like, again, the first three years, by the time we were to YC, we were four. So we had a long time of like a you know, very small team and then we quickly ramped from four to 50 over the course of say 14 months or so um and it's a materially different company uh than it was before and something i learned in this journey is that the two hats the ceo hat and the co-founder hat are completely different they work well together obviously a lot of the ceos are co-founders and coos that can have other the exact roles but the skill set, the interests, 
like are are very different. And I think he in the early days the I'd say the weight is ninety nine percent on the co founder hat. And as you start growing, it starts to migrate more to the CEO hat. And you know, the CEO hat becomes more important, which is not to your point, is the operator operator part. And I think what I see in many kind of with many co-founders and you know, talking with coaches and, and other things like that is that some people they just don't like the operator. They are great as founders, they get things started, they get excited with the innovation, but they just don't want to run a business. They don't want to do planning. They don't want to go through the process. So I think the the best I'll try to like uh, answer your question is whenever the operator is feeling that what they are doing and is required for the business, it's no longer energizing them. Or it's outside their skill sets. So like they're just bad in planning. They are great, like you know, creative types. They are not good in planning. They are not, cannot be organized. Those are, I think, the symptoms when you know, they're like, okay, this is either getting out of my comfort zone, or not comfort zone, because founders will always be outside the comfort zone, but it's getting out of my skill set and I don't want to learn. It's something that doesn't energize me. It's that can really drag me down. That's a good time to bring somebody, start to specialize, bring people that have that uh, expertise and let them go and empower them to just make sure that you, this is going to, the, the company is covered, but you don't have to do it. But that is such a beautiful answer because I've been asked that so many times. And you're right. It is so specific based on the business, what the goals are, short-term, mid-term, long-term, when you really sort of can take that risk in bringing in other senior leaders or other roles or specializations. Mm-hmm. But I do find that a key motivator with founders in the business is if they aren't energized by it, it just sort of falls to the wayside. And so then you kind of get into these pits of, I guess, the oh shit pits <laughs> where mm-hmm. it's like, oh, no, we didn't like doing this. So we didn't really think about this. And now we're at risk because we just didn't want to put energy toward it. Yeah. Whereas somebody like myself, like I, you know, I'm not a marketing person, but man, I could totally geek out on automations and data cleanliness and all these sort of things like that energizes me. So that's when the, what you're talking about, finding those people that are energized by the things that you are not, and then having them complement your skill set so you can put your time towards something that energizes you and moves the business forward. Yeah. And this is not only important for the business, because then I think you're going to have better skills doing what is required. But it's very important for you as a founder, as a uh, uh, like uh, personally, because it's a hard job, right? So if you are not finding or spending a decent amount of your time in something that is energizing, it's just kind of hard to keep going. The, the journey is already hard enough. There will be enough problems in front of you that will drag you down. Like, you know, um, then you got to keep finding and keep making sure that you are getting the energy back at all times. Definitely. And we can't under I, I don't we can't understate that actually it's so important because you're in a marathon you're not in a sprint so this is multiple years of doing this and if you aren't continuously energized by what you're doing that's gonna feel just so daunting it's gonna feel impossible yeah and and what I like to say is that you are in a marathon but you're gonna run as fast as the best in the world right so I I even brought that to the team like so the I think there's something the uh, the average the, the they say the winner of the marathon is gonna run twice as fast as the average. So for startups, you are running a marathon, but you gotta run twice as fast as the average. You don't have all if you just run the average, you're not gonna do anything. You because as a startup by definition, you are starting 
very small. So you are behind incumbents, you're behind like you know, all the work you need to do. So you gotta go very fast. And but it's still a marathon, so you cannot go as fast as boat or like somebody that runs a hundred meter mm -hmm. sprint because that you're gonna run out of energy. But you gotta go a lot faster than the average. And I think that's something that like I hear the marathon all analogy all the time, and it is true. But he hides the fact that you you have to run like the first prize in the marathon, not only as the whoever is gonna finish in their weekend hobby, right? Totally. You're balancing two really important things simultaneously, which yeah. I don't think most people, when they jump into founding a business, quite get, where you have to have the longevity and the energy to keep going the distance, but also work your tail off in the, the midterm or the short term to be able to get to where your competitors are or ahead of where your competitors yeah. are, even being yeah. so much smaller. That's not an easy thing to figure out, especially if it's your first time. I'm sure the more times you do it, the more the muscle that you have with it. Now, okay, if we talk about Tint and just you being a, a registered broker, I, I, when it comes to operations, none of the people and businesses I work with like to talk about insurance. Yeah. And somehow you have found yourself in <laughs> this part of the world and in the business industry. So why insurance like what do you what is it about insurance that you saw that needed to be addressed within the market yeah so i think we um the interesting parts like again as most people work in insurance i as i mentioned i got to to it while i was working at Turo, so by accident right like i never knew that <laughs> when i joined Turo, a tech company in san francisco i'll be spending any second um in insurance and, you know, as a consumer, as everybody else, I find it incredibly hard and confusing and all those things. And then some of you mentioned before, as, as an afterthought. And, but then I think the, the insight we had, which I, I found very, um, and I can talk about the data part and being a data geek and how insurance is all about data. So all those like personal sides of like why I find it intellectually uh, very stimulating. But the, the, the consumer part and the, the most important why is that you now insurance is a very important product. Like you don't want to think about it. And frankly, you shouldn't think about it, but it's very important that you have it because if something goes wrong with your car or like when you're transporting an expensive good, whatever it can be, there's a serious financial loss on the other side. And depending on who you are, how much savings you have, like you can have a catastrophic effect in your life. So well, it is this kind of combination of, you don't care and shouldn't care, but you must have it. It's mission critical for you. So then what gets us excited is like, well, that what that means is that, and that's what we saw about what is called embedded insurance or what we did at Turo is that insurance would be a feature and not a product, right? So mm -hmm. the way you solve this, this conundrum is that if now the insurance becomes part of something, now product and service that you're using, and already comes with, or you can easily purchase as part of that package, then you don't have to think about it as much. Then mm. you don't have to go download an app and interact with a brand you don't want. It's just, again, going back to the tour example, you're renting a Porsche for the weekend to go to an outside Chicago to celebrate with your husband. You just see a little button to say, you want to add protection? Like if anything goes wrong, you pay $30 more. Done. Imagine if now you had to call your broker and say, hey, Mary, I need insurance for two days for this Porsche, but blah, blah, blah. You don't have to, right? Going back to like, it's not part of the, the, 
the right solution. So we, what gets us very excited is that the way we are helping companies create their own insurance products as part of the product services, it's a much better solution for consumers. And as a consequence, more people will be covered when, when they need. And the companies on their side, it's very profitable. Their core business becomes better. So it's really a win-win solution. Totally. It's interesting to me too, because I think we're see- like car renting is such a clear example, right? Like you need the car insurance when you rent a car. If you don't, like I didn't have a car when I lived in New York. Uh-huh. So what do you do in that situation? You don't have yeah. inherent coverage, right? And just baking it into the product makes it easy. Where do you see that going in the future? Because car is very clear. Maybe like renting potentially is clear. Like where do you see that feature being used in the future in maybe ways that we aren't seeing today? Yeah, so the beauty is that it's going to happen everywhere. So um, despite being a relatively young company, we already have 12 or 13 different use cases running on our platform from everything from things like you mentioned, like car sharing, motorcycle sharing, uh, to shipping, to vacation rental. So Airbnb use cases, like you don't think about it, but Airbnb has 300 people that all they do is work with insurance. So you have a cover in case, you know, you rent a place, the place burns out or whatever, you break the TV, there is insurance that goes with that. So like and every time, you know, you're transporting something, you're renting something, you are using some assets of different kinds, but we've seen use cases like um, legal liability, we've seen crypto, um, we've seen a, a company it's called Citizen Shipper, which transport dogs. So if you buy a dog from a breeder in New York and you want to transport to Chicago, you can get protection for like, you know, if dog gets sick and needs a vet that is that is covered. So like, again, we've seen that that is, a, that is happening everywhere around insurance. So we believe that, you know, in 10 years or so, uh, if you fast forward, the way the consumers uh, and companies interact and consume insurance is going to be materially different. And what Tint does, we're building the infrastructure that lets this happen, like all the the, top, the software, the services, the, the um, what we call capacity or like the money that, that, that makes it all work because it's incredibly hard. Like to do this very simple thing that is making insurance a feature of a bigger product, it is incredibly, incredibly hard um, mm-hmm. to to execute, and that's kind of what we are creating. What do you think is the? I mean, I'm sure there's a gazillion things that are hard about this. Just having a taste of it in what I do, but what would you say is the biggest hurdle that you're trying to overcome in what you're building? Uh, in terms of what we're building, again, is is to redesign the insurance, rethink the insurance experience in the insurance product. We, again, with this idea that it's going to be a feature in mind, because in really the last, whatever, 400 years, everything around insurance was designed as a standalone product. So how do we support that as a standalone product? So when we flip the logic and say, okay, now it's just a feature of what, say, you ship one of our customers um, sell, you have to redo now, a lot of things from scratch. And I think that is, that is to me is what's hard. And from the systems that you you need to run that and keep track of who purchased what, keep track of all the money is flowing, to pay people, to pay people when you know, the claim happens and they file and make sure that they get paid. The pieces. Quickly. Oh, um, yeah. Getting the insurers excited and understanding how to operate in this new world is, you know, it's a whole uh, challenge. 
So it's really like, mm-hmm. you know, it's a combination of a lot of smaller pieces. And, mm-hmm. you know, as, as a startup, we're building them bit by bit. So that's something I think we did well is like try to break it up, you know, those whatever 20 pieces and start building one by one. And today we, we have most of them um, already like not built or in the process mm-hmm. of being built. But that's when, again, going back to the advice for founders is that like, you know, it's okay to have this very big vision and it's great. You, know, you can see the 20 pieces that need to be built, but try to get traction and try to get, you know, figure out like, can what is the one that I can try to sell, build and sell already? Because mm-hmm. you then build the other 19 based on that momentum. If you need to have all the 20 working well from the get-go, it's a lot harder to get started. It's a lot of whiplash too for the team, right? It's like, where do they prioritize their time? Where do they prioritize their efforts? Each of those pieces that you're building is going to require a lot of different um, research and testing and prototyping, all of that to go into it. So how do you sort of direct not just yourself, but the whole team in one direction to sort of get the momentum moving and continue it throughout the years of building the, the business and your products? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely, and that's uh, and that's a it's a hard skill because breaking something and founders typically are gonna you know they see an opportunity, they're visionaries, they get excited about higher level concepts or like big changes in the world, things like that. But then getting and breaking that into smaller pieces that can be built is definitely a, a skill that I can I think I learned uh, a lot in in my journey. Um, but I mean, I'm pretty sure I need to be a lot better at it. <laughs> Don't we all? My family jokes that I have to always learn things the hard way, meaning I have to fall on my face and then I learn the thing. <laughs> Did you find that most lessons that you've learned in starting businesses and doing what you've done, is it because you sort of did the research ahead of time and you prevented a misstep or is it because you pulled, I guess, an Ariana <laughs> and, you know, you tripped and you tried something and it didn't work. And so then you're on to the next thing. I guess how much of it is reactively understanding and, and knowing and how much of it is preemptively getting that information? I'll tell you, I'm probably more in the middle in a sense that mm-hmm. or more towards you. Um, in a sense that like, you know, I believe again, as founders, the being agile, being like, you know, going out there and trying things, it's very important because if you, like, if you do say the, the, the pure market research and uh, like your uh, angle that you mentioned, you're going to get to a lot of hypotheses like, okay, that is probably going to become a problem if I don't do something about it. But you really don't know if it becomes a problem. And oftentimes companies do build a lot to prevent this problem that never happened. Like you were just wrong. Mm-hmm. There was not a problem. And, and by the way, and by the way, there was another problem that you didn't anticipate that is actually important and you have to go fix. So in this startup journey, there's so much you can predict because if it was very easy to predict, like, you know, anybody would do it, big companies would do it. Uh, or if it was very easy to look at something and say like, yeah, that's absolutely going to be a $10 billion opportunity. Like most $10 billion opportunities don't look like that at the get-go. So I believe that as founders, we have to get started. We have to jump. And then, you know, having that, sometimes a naivete can be beneficial because if you like contrast it with an expert, right? Like you work for 40 years in this industry, you've seen everything, every, you just believe that nothing will work. Like you just get in there, like, you know, uh, academic studies around that is like, 
like the way the experts think is not conducive to innovation just because for the most part they know too much of what can go wrong totally. so they don't even start <laughs> so long way of saying that like i try to strike a balance when like you know the obvious landmines you should address them to the extent possible but he, i i like to be biased towards action and then now even if it means that you to a point you're gonna make some mistakes and gonna learn some things alongside the way it's so funny when you mentioned that because the first thing that came to my mind was like that's exactly how i felt about getting our dog when he was a puppy was mm-hmm. like we didn't know like we never raised a dog like we got this no problem and then the first six months are just complete chaos and you're just it's just a complete madness and they're biting everything and chewing everything and you're like oh my god what did i get myself into and then you get through that crazy phase and you start to get you know uh, like a callus for how to have a dog and how to do all those things but it's kind of the same thing any anytime you're jumping into something new is it's gonna feel chaotic you can only prep so much you know i, I did all the research and then you just have to try it and you've got to see what's going on and you've got to be open to trying new things. And, and then through that process, you learn it. It's so funny how pers- your personal life and the business world really can mimic each other, even though it feels quite different. Um, especially uh, on, on the first year of having a puppy was t- intense. Is there yeah. a certain window, having started many businesses, that you're like, if I can get past this time frame, I think we're going to be okay? Uh-huh. <laughs> Is there anything consistent within the startup world? Would you say like, hey, if we can make it past the first year, we're going to be okay? Or is it just dependent on the business and the team and all those pieces? Yeah, I think I wish there was, but I don't think there is. I think the reality is that the startup always going to be like a, like a battle. They're always going to be existential things at each stage. They change. Like it's a little bit like a video game. You finish the first phase you 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 beat the boss of that level you go to the next one which is a different game harder different challenges and i think it's to me startups kind of keep keep going if there was uh and we we raised uh, a very large series a uh 25 million dollars like a year uh, a year and a half ago and you know part of us thought like yeah oh, great so the hard, the hardest, the hardest part is behind it. And it's not really true because you have we have today diff, definitely different challenges there now. Mm-hmm. Arguably more exciting because they're like related to growth, and we have more customers. We have a lot more data, more more things to do than in the, the early days. With a lot of it was in our heads, um, but we if you look at now we work. Look at I was a company in logistics called Convoy that raised like two hundred plus million dollars in vanish like in a few weeks think about silicon valley bank which is something that a lot of founders had to deal with um a few months ago those are the silicon valley bank is a public company a public bank like you know can you imagine if you're the ceo of that company you think you made it you're just happy and collecting your profits and not really like there's some changes in the market that can come and you didn't plan for it and you're out of business you're bankrupt so I think that like I no longer tell myself that story that like yeah it, it's gonna be easy from here because it's not true and it, personally that's what makes it exciting right I'll probably be bored if it becomes true easy. That's true. That's true. When so when it comes to f- fundraising, I guess I want to put myself in the the role of an operator. So in preparation to raise you know the Series A, what do you think the role is of the operator within that? Because I think that sometimes, you know, people listening who are operations people, 
I've had different experiences, right? Like get your ducks in a row, prepare for the fundraise, get the infrastructure together, get the data together. Like what would you say are the top, you know, two or three things that an operator can contribute to making that fundraising process easier or faster? I think they definitely have like showing that you understand your business and you are in control of it. So, so I think in getting all the data ready or like knowing you know, important metrics, um, I think that's the piece that comes from the kind of the bottoms up. That is, no, it's very important, right? The, you're going to go through, <laughs> through a diligence. So making sure that you have all the documents and the T's are crossed, like they're not like nothing I imagine would be more uh, annoying and, and, and frustrating that you found a great investor. You can't convince of the mission vision or the top down part, right? Like, this is going to be a huge market. This is our plan and get everybody excited just to then like, you know, fail on the due diligence because your stock documents are not in order, or there's a major liability of whatever kind that, that you, know, you didn't disclose or didn't know about it or was not anticipated. So I think like, yeah, getting, I would think almost like a tops down versus bottom up, the bottom up, which the operator parts is like, make sure you're in control, make sure that things are clean and organized. And then the top, top down is selling the dream, right? Selling the, the potential mm-hmm. and things related to that. That does make me think about when I'm helping businesses sort of stabilize their operations. And I'm like, we've got to centralize all of your founding documents, all of your insurance. Like we have to centralize all these things. And there, there's like usually resistance there. I think just because it's annoying and they don't see it as valuable. But like you said, you don't want to get to, you know, the finish line <laughs> and not have all your P's and Q's together. Yeah. Like that yeah. should be the simplest part of the process because you've been mentally preparing and, you know, preparing your operations for that. So as much of a pain or maybe it doesn't seem valuable at the time to to do and to dig up, it's like the simplest thing that you can do to actually really contribute something big at the end of the yeah. day. Yeah, I definitely empathize with the feeling that like, yeah, that doesn't seem to be, it's not fun and doesn't seem to be important until it is, right? So that's why I think yeah. that, um, I think that like, you know, the operators and, and, and the founders, like they should have the minimum bar, like, you know, and make sure that that, they always comply to that. I mean, of course, it doesn't spend, you shouldn't spend time like as a series A company and things like, ah, oh, we need that when I go public, like, cool. That is a problem you do down the road, but like having your family documents, your stock documents or things like your insurance, like things like that. Yeah, that you probably need today already. And it's, no, it's not that hard, uh, but it's to your point, people don't want to deal with that. No, because when you started your company is maybe two people, three people. Yeah, right? So yeah. you have it on your drive or you have it on your file and it's under this name that maybe you can find, right? It's like not a big deal. We can find it when we need it. That's the kind of mentality we have to switch and say, all right, let me just take a half day, put a podcast in, find all these things, give it to my operator to judge and rename and make it really nice and centralize all these things. Because whenever we need it, I don't want to have to think about it. Or yeah. what I like to call like the if I get hit by a bus thing. If I get hit by a bus roll, if I get hit by a bus, you got everything you need to keep it rolling while I recover in the hospital. Like you can, you got it going. Uh, that's that's a good little pro tip for the, the operators out there. Yeah, I agree. This has been so wonderful. I want to wrap up with some rapid fire questions about you as a human, just okay. to bring you to light a little bit more. So I'm gonna I'm gonna shoot them your way, and then you just knock them down as they come. 
You ready? Sounds good. Okay. First of all, what is your favorite part of the day? Mornings. I'm a morning person, so I'm up and running at like 6, 6 a.m. And that's, I don't know, it feels good to wake up, start a new day. So that's my favorite part. What book or audiobook are you currently listening to? I'm finishing the biography of Elon Musk by Walt Isaacson, and it's been very interesting. I love biographies. I read all the books on his, uh, uh, so uh, Walter Isaacson, and yeah, it's been a pretty nice book. What is the best purchase that you have made under fifty dollars? I want to say tennis balls. I love to play tennis, Ooh. and. Uh, I don't purchase a lot of things. So that's why purchasing is not top of mind. And when I do, it's probably above $50. So that's why I would say, yeah, it's, it's, it's not obvious to me. <laughs> well, as a avid tennis player, is there a certain type of tennis brand, tennis ball brand that you would recommend? Um, I do use a pen. Pan Championship is the, I'd say, the most, the one that you buy at Costco and big in bulk. That's the one I get. Good to know when I get my Costco card. Um, what is your favorite quote? This one I have a few, um, but I would say um, fortune favors the prepared mind. Um, so I do think the concept of luck. It's not really luck. Like you know, there are many things happening to people all the time. It's just I'm sure prepared. Something that seems to be like luck is just aligning you know, different things. So mm, I like that flip on that quote too. Um, I'm gonna take that one. Next one is what is something that makes you little kid happy? Uh, little kid happy playing games, playing video game. I still do it. Oh. Did a lot of growing up. Still do it, and that that makes that brings the the kid back. Uh, What's your go to game right now? Right now, uh, I mean, I have not had a lot of time to play games lately, but I've been playing this game called Polytopia, which is yeah. a phone game. So it's easy. You at the airport waiting or something. I saw that on the Elon Musk book. Apparently, he's crazy about it, and I had never heard. I play other games of the same type. I love the strategy type games, so this is the one I spend probably twenty minutes a day playing when I'm tired to do other things. <laughs> yeah, I'm, now I'm going to spend time doing that. <laughs> um, knowing what you know now, what would you? What advice would you give to your younger self in starting their career? Take more risks. Um, be more aggressive, do things faster. Um, I think, yeah, I I definitely took, even if it doesn't sound like I took a very kind of risk-averse path. I went to business, I was a consultant, I went to business school. So I put myself in a position that it's kind of very de-risk. But in hindsight, I would have started doing startups at the age of 18 mm -hmm. and skip a lot of other things. That's good advice. Uh, last one, which is, what would you like to be when you grow up? I like to be a founder who had impact in the world. And, you know, I can look at whatever I spend you know, 16 hours a day working and say, they helped others succeed. It had impact in the world. So if people are listening to this interview and they're like, oh my gosh, I want to stay in touch with what Mateus is doing, what Tim's up to, uh, where can people find you and follow your journey? Uh, LinkedIn is the easiest place. Again, if you if you want to talk with 
Tint. There's a website, Tint.ai. One way or the other is going to get to me. But you know, if you are like, of course, I'm LinkedIn, very active. So it's a good place. And as far as I know, there's only Mateus Riofi out there. So it should be easy to find me there. We'll make sure to put it in the description as well so people can find you easily. Uh, thank you so much. I feel like we did gymnastics through a million topics, which is my favorite. So I really appreciate your knowledge and being so generous with your experience. Thank you so much, Irena. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Secret Ops listeners, as always, thank you so much for listening. And please make sure to follow us with wherever you subscribe to your podcast. We are also on YouTube now. So if you are a visual learner like me, you can watch our conversation there. See you next time. Hey, listener. Do you want to be a top operator in business and in life? Well, we at Secret Ops are here to help you do just that. Check out our monthly Secret Ops newsletter with exclusive intel just for you. From bonus content to secret resources, we've given you the VIP access. To sign up, check out the link in the description. And as always, thanks for listening.